All right, so I'm here with Reed Pretty. Reed, thank you so much for being here. Really appreciate your time. Yeah, happy to be here. Yeah, man. Reed, you are an amazing athlete, inspiring person. Uh, just a quick bio on you. Uh, 16 years on the men's indoor national team as an outside hitter. 15 years playing in six countries as a pro indoor volleyball player. Four-time Olympian. Gold medal in 2008 in Beijing. Bronze medal in Rio. Um, a competitor on the AVP, winning the Manhattan Open uh, in 2019. I had a chance to play against you in 2017. You kicked my butt, but it, that was awesome. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but you're awesome, man. Uh, I'm really inspired by your story. And uh, again, thanks for being here. I'm going to get right into it. Um, here's the first question. What does living an inspired life mean to you? Living an inspired life, Aaron, I think for me is, um, I think, I think it's about living on purpose. You know, there's, there's, um, you know, it, it would seem to me that having the end in mind, whether you are starting a new business, um, you know, trying to do well in school or trying to pursue, um, a championship, uh, starting with the end in mind seems to be, um, uh, to me, a really important step um, and almost taken for granted a lot. And so I think to live an inspired life is almost to have that end in mind in all the areas of your life, almost top of mind all the time. And so I'm waking up and I'm looking to uh, continue to press forward and take ground towards uh, each of those, you know, the end of each of those things that, um, and so, you know, I'm asking personally, I'm asking questions. Um, so in my athletic career, things are so much more tangible. It's, it's easy to recognize what the goal of any one team is, right? It's to win. Uh, and so it's been really awesome as an athlete to sort of dive into that really almost um, intellectually easy world to, uh, to delineate um, who you're playing against, what you're trying to do, and all those different things. But to pull that into other areas of your life is where it gets interesting. Uh, what does it look like to win at life? Um, right. And so how do I live an inspired life? I think it's, it's clear on who you are and what it is that you're, you exist um, to do. Mm. Uh, that's, that's how I'd answer that question. I love that. I love having the end in mind, kind of, kind of having a compass, a goal, you know, somewhere to go. You know, I, I feel like a lot of people don't have the end in mind and they just kind of float. So it's really important to have that. Um, can you expand on, you know, the inspired feeling and take it into a practice? What does having an inspired practice mean to you? Um, I think, I think I, I, what I should tack on to living an inspired life is, um, what was really beneficial to me, and this didn't happen until, so I, I sort of operated subconsciously on this for a while, but I didn't have clear language to it, was discovering my driving force um, or my why. So that's a, you know, that's a pretty in vogue term now. Simon Sinek has, has made it famous for the right reasons. Of, um, and I was super inspired by him and his book, uh, Start With Why, and I went through that process, and it took me like four months to land on the actual language and really fully get, uh, you know, what is read pretty wake up inspired? What, why, why am I waking up uh, inspired? And, and what am I carrying? What, what sort of like undercurrent am I carrying into every part of, of my life? And so mine is to push boundaries 
and inspire collaboration. Those are the two things that inspire me. Um, and so to me, walking into a practice is to make sure that I'm doing those two things, you know, uh, that I am leveraging my full self to expand the borders of myself and, and also the team and doing it with the team. Um, I've, I have found the most uh, value and significance in uh, my relationships to the larger group. Um, I think it feels good to be dependent on. Um, it feels good to be battling uh, with people. Uh, so that's, that's kind of how I would answer um, an inspired practice is sort of coming in clear of who I am and, and what I'm about and, and what we're trying to do. That's awesome. Well, since you touched on it, I was actually going to ask you that question later, but your why? I mean, it is such a kind of deep philosophical question that not a lot of us think about, but it's really important to think about. And you touched on it and let's just expand on it. So when you wake up in the morning and you ask yourself, what is my, what is my why? You know, I mean, what, what does that include? You know, it doesn't necessarily have to be athletics. I'm sure, I'm sure a big part of it is for you, but yeah, go, go into that a little deeper. Yeah, sure. So when I transitioned from indoor volleyball, um, I still had competitive juice in my bones, right? So I was, I was still playing at a high level. I just worked two years back from, from knee injury and I was strong, uh, but I really didn't capitalize financially on that um, moment, right? I just made it back to the Olympics and then I retired. <laughs> and the reason I retired was because um, I had a, my wife and two kids and, and my son was entering into kindergarten. So uh, right before the Olympics, I was in Italy. And I remember thinking to myself like, wow, I'm living, I, I'm living in Italy. I'm, we're getting paid. We're on a great team uh, with great, a great infrastructure, which, which doesn't happen all the time. As you probably know, there was sports med. There was a great doc. I mean, like the whole thing was good. And I remember thinking to myself like, man, I could do this another five years. I could just take the summers off, you know, surf, play golf, and, and then go back overseas. Uh, and then as soon as like that thought hit me, like uh, an opposing thought hit me of like my wife in some small Italian apartment with two kids, one needing to go to school and no friends. So it became clear that although I could keep playing, it wasn't the right thing for our family. So when I, when I transitioned to beach, I knew that beach volleyball, the economics were not good. Um, and that it would not be sustainable financially to depend on that as my income. Plus, I didn't want to um, leverage a big part of four years into a new pursuit being around 40 and then retire from beach and, and uh, come uh, at 45 be asking myself, now what do I do? Right. <laughs> so at that time, I started to really think through like, I want to, you know, I also want to be an entrepreneur. I've always wanted to do that. So like, what can I build in parallel to, um, to, to my pursuits on the court, off the court to where they could outlive my days uh, playing. And so when I went into that first year in 2017, when you and I played together, I was trying my version of um, this is what we'll do. We'll do this, that, and the other, and, and we'll market it. It'll be great. And, and it just totally flopped. Um, and so right at the end of that competitive season, I reached out to a friend of mine. I said, hey, Daniel, you know how to build teams and, and how to really, you know, um, get people on mission and, and successfully build teams that accomplish great things. I want to do that. How do you do that? And he said, well, I've been wait, waiting for you to ask me this question. And I have this friend 
who um, I think can really help us out here. So he gets this friend named Megan and the two of them come over to my house and we have a whiteboard. And, uh, and so I, I came into like, this is what happened in the last year. This is all this stuff. And, and I basically just said like, look, I think the things that I'm doing are good, but I want to know what the end goal is. Like, where am I going? What's the end goal? And she stopped me and she said, you know what? I don't think that's the right question you need to ask yourself. I think you need to ask yourself um, why. And then so she introduced me to Simon Sinek. The very next day, um, I actually had the back nine of Seacliff uh, golf course to myself. I put Audible in on like 2X with a notepad in the cart. And I literally was just playing loops, swinging the golf club, taking notes. And this book is amazing. So essentially, the golden circle is um, why you do something is really important. How you do something is the next circle. And then the outer circle is what you do. And the premise of the book is, is like when you're clear with your why, um, there's really nothing you can't do, right? Uh, but, and when you communicate your why to the world, you attract the right people to you, your product, your service, your company, your brand. Um, and the companies that connect with, uh, only talk about their what, it's not the same relationship. And so that's when it's, that's when it started for me was to really start to, t to take that seriously. And so what I didn't understand about the why is it's not like a mission statement. It's not aspirational. It's uh, the way you discover your why, because apparently uh, your gut feeling, the feelings that we have at a gut level, they exist in a part of our brain that is opposite from language. So it's hard for us to apply language to those gut instincts. And you really need like a third party to walk you through this process. So I had these two individuals that essentially were just great friends uh, that had leading questions and they just asked me a ton of questions. And my job was to storytell about my whole life and their job was to take notes and find themes. And at the end of it, they came back to me and said, these were the themes that we saw. Um, and out of those themes, it was very clear that I'm drawn to potential. Like it's like a, an addiction. It's, um, it's a scratch I have to itch or an itch I have to scratch, I Love should that. say. Love that. And, um, and so if I see it in you or, or me or us, um, I, it has, I have to figure it out. Like, how do, we, yeah. how do we get better? How do we push the limits? Um, how do we expand our borders? Uh, so that's, that's a, like almost to, like, I really have to be careful because I can be so driven that I forget the other, you know, the most important things, which are the relationships. Right. Um, and then the other aspect was there was no dream that I had um, that or story that I told that was a solo story. It was always a team, uh, uh, my wife, you know, like a family, a, a tribe. There was always this sense of community involved. And so, you know, the hopeful outcome is that um, we, we're clear on who we are and what we're about and we're building things that are sustainable, that um, are valuable. And, um, you know, we're, we're able to operate at the outer limits of our ability while we do it. So that was kind of like my process in discovering my why. Amazing, man. Um, you know, this project is for the youth athlete and I want to stay on that question because it is so deep and so meaningful um, and so important. But, you know, when did you start thinking about that question? Because for me, it was after college. You know, I think I started to dabble it in it in college. Like, what is my why? But it took me a while, you know, 
And I kind of wish I dabbled in it earlier. But when you're growing up, especially as an athlete, everything's regimented. There's a schedule. There's a season. It's kind of kind of hard to think about your why when you're focused on the what. So yes. what can yeah, especially when you're young and growing up. So what can you offer to that person, that youth athlete who's driven, who's focused on the what, but is starting to think about their why? That's a great question uh, because you know I think you know especially with the juniors that are hearing us. You know, um, I think the majority of coaches would say it's hard to talk mindset with this age group. Um, and I would love for them to hear that. And almost like uh, as a challenge, like, hey, we can handle it. Like we're, you know, we're willing to go that. But, it, but it's, it's uh, I will say uh, in their defense that they're at a part of their life where they're, they're starting to discover who am I outside of my family right um and i think when we get into college now, now we're like it's us in the world and we're sort of cleaving from um our roots and sort of self-discovering who we are so i wouldn't put a ton of pressure um, on that athlete to to like hey go you know start going deep but what i would um to me mindset you could sub mindset out with awareness mm. and um, I think that if, if I could encourage a 14, 15, 16 year old, um, just to become a little bit more self-aware, like, you know, try to decrease the feedback loop between what is actually happening and what you feel like is happening because emotions can really cloud, um, our perception of reality. Uh, and I think that as we get stronger, you know, at the end of the day, to be able to perform under pressure, to be clutch, it just means that you are able to operate at your full capabilities under any circumstance. That's it. It's the ability to concentrate and focus. Uh, that's hard to do if you are surrounded by uh, your own self-defense mechanisms of um, trying to project to the world, this is who I am. And I think with social media too, like the, the whole aspect of us being able to sort of narrate and project a narration and a narrative of who we are. Um, you know, I think, I think kids these days are starting to wise up uh, and they, they're starting to recognize that like, this is smoke and mirrors, man. Like this isn't real life that we're seeing on social media. This is right. people projecting what they want me to think. But I think they're probably having the same doubts and insecurities uh, and fears that I might be having. And I would love to see some leaders uh, some young leaders step up and just say like, Hey, this is real. This is who I am. This is what I'm dealing with and take it, take it or leave it. Right. Um, right. But, uh, but yeah, so it is, it's one of those topics that's um, it's hard to, to maybe uh, talk about, but I think just sort of um, making it real simple instead of mindset, maybe it's a mind frame. We're going to give you a framework of how to think, um, you know, cause I was, you know, at that age, I was insecure yeah. uh, immensely. And um, it took me a while to sort of break through and recognize that my competitive drive was, was stronger than my insecurities. And so it no longer mattered what I thought about myself. What mattered was the end goal. Um, but again, it takes, it takes uh, some, some awareness, some self-awareness. 
Well, let's talk about focus since you mentioned focus. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm big on focus. And, you know, I saw in one of your videos that you mentioned that focus is a skill and that you have to practice it. And, um, you know, I think you mentioned something about a, a, a breathing practice that you, you guys, you, it, was it the, uh, the national team that you were doing mm -hmm. some, uh, some mm -hmm. focus work? I mean, I, I really like that because this project is all about tools, you know, tools that mm -hmm. the athlete can use really in any given moment. But if you could just expand on that idea of focus and that it's a skill and that, you know, what tools that, that, you, that have helped you practice focus. Mm -hmm. That's great. Yeah. So uh, let's start at the top. So if being clutch, we all want to be clutch. Right. We all want to be Michael Jordan. Uh, give me the ball with three seconds left and I'm going to bury the shot. So if we remove the misnomers that being clutch is something that you're either born with or not, um, then we can call it a skill. And if it's a skill, that means I can learn it. It's a learned skill, right? It's not, I'm not born with the ability to, to, to be clutch or not born with it. So just know that Michael Jordan wasn't always clutch. Um, you know, and he, he, I've been watching, actually, when we talk talking about Michael Jordan, I've been watching his documentary lately, which is amazing. Right. right. And, uh, you know, the, the whole story of him getting cut as a junior hire and having a brother that just picked on him and was actually a better basketball player in high school. You know, all of these different things where he was the underdog, that's what formed MJ, right? Um, to, but it's so easy for us to see who he became and imagine that it was just um, – that there wasn't, it wasn't formed, right? Um, and so if, if, uh, if clutch is about being focused under pressure and focus is a skill, that means I can learn it. So how do I learn yeah. the ability to focus? And so we would do uh, different things. Like one would be um, the breathing exercise where at the end of a practice, we would, uh, or actually even at the beginning of practice, we would all just be quiet. We would sit down or whatever. And we would start to uh, go through counts with our breath. And the idea was how long could we stay focused on where the air is coming in and where it's going out. And what you would, what you would find happening is your mind would hear a ball dribbling in the other side of the gym. And then ball dribbling turns into bird whistling. And now I'm thinking about dinner tonight. And, you know, and all of a sudden you catch yourself like, whoa, like I wasn't even at all it had an easy task, breathe in through the nose, breathe out through the mouth. And I just went on this crazy mental trek. Right. Uh, now, what we typically, what we can often do is um, not be gracious with ourselves and almost get mad that like, oh man, I can't even focus. But really it's not about that. It's about bringing it back. And I think that's the big thing with focus is that it's not this like, oh, I'm going to try to focus super hard for, for uh, you know, it's like a plank, you know, like yeah. holding a plank. I can hold it for 30 seconds, then 45, then a minute. Um, I think focus is one of those things where as you become more aware and more skilled, you can notice you're getting off track, and then you just bring it back. Ball bouncing, fine, I'm back on my breath. You know, like dinner tonight, I'll take care of it after, back on my breath. And really, um, then you start to carry that into routines like my serving routine. You know, what am I focused on? And when I'm in practice, am I able to start to put scenarios in my head or visions or visualizations in my head um, about what the scenario is going to be like in the big game so that I'm trying to get reps instead of just like, uh, you know, 
um, let's say in our sport, um, coach says, hey, uh, everybody on the end line, we're going to serve for the next 10 minutes. Like what typically happens? Uh, we're not even thinking about a routine. We're just lobbing balls. We're talking amongst one another. We're not going through like a systemic, you know, like I actually have a service routine that I do every time. I bounce it uh, four times, but I, but I count in my head that it's five. Sorry, go ahead. No sweat. Sorry about uh, that. So my, my serving routine, I'm bouncing the ball. Uh, I'm, I'm, I have a focal point. I'm envisioning Brazil. And I'm going back and serving. And what's interesting about that exercise specifically, I worked uh, with the late Ken Revisa, who was an amazing mental coach, uh, worked a lot in Major League Baseball. He worked with us before 08. Um, he actually helped me put myself in situations that were pressure situations when it was just him and I, either in a hallway or the gym. Uh, and I was able to, once I got to the Olympics and I was serving, um, like uh, in a crazy important moment with Brazil on the other line, on the other side, I remember thinking to myself like, Oh, I've been here before, even though I hadn't. Uh, ah. So it's one of those things where like the more, the more intent that we can do that we can implement uh, the better. And, and also, you know, again, understanding who we're talking to um, with, you know, the high school, I want, I want them to hear this too, that you don't have to, it's not about being serious all the time. Like that's me. Like I'm hyper serious. Uh, I like to get after it and all these different things, but I'm also, uh, I also like to joke and have fun. And it's funny because Rich Lamborn, one of my teammates just commented on this uh, like two months ago. He's just like, it's so crazy to me that you can be the most focused and the most goofy on the court at the same time. Um, and so you can have permission, and Ken Revisit would say this a lot too, between points to like let your mind go for a second. You know, it's, it's you know, just if, if you need to kind of like Sean Rooney, one of my teammates, he would always exit the court every play. So every play we would come into the huddle and then he would go back and put his foot on the end line and kind of come back. And that was his way of saying like, I'm in control. I'm going to go do something to uh, – um, allow myself to know that I'm in control and now I'm back. Um, and he used to say that all the time, like on the, on the pitcher's mound is, you know, pitchers don't put your foot on the rubber, the, the pitching, you know, pitching rubber until you're ready. Uh, but give yourself permission to not be ready. And it's just say, I'm not ready, you know, and for us in, in volleyball, we can do goofy things as long as you don't have too crazy of a ref to, to act like there's sweat on the floor or, you know, hey, all this ball, you know, just kind of touch, you know, or don't look at the ball person right away and don't get the ball yet until right. you're ready. And, you know, trying to maintain some control, but awareness of, of where you're at mentally. I really like that, Reed. It reminds me of uh, another story you talked about of you being insecure almost, I think, recently when you were, uh, I think you were talking about the Anaheim Convention Center and you, uh -huh. you were, was it Brazil that you were playing against? Uh, that was Puerto Rico. Puerto Rico exhibition. So I want to talk about that because every athlete has some sort of insecurity at some point, whether it's in practice or a match or a game or whatever they're playing. And for me, it reminds me of a failure response system. Uh, we, I learned this at UCLA with Mike Seeley um, when I was volunteering there. And, and what we would do is we, when we noticed 
you know, athletes going through that, that failure, that moment of insecurity, that moment of doubt, that moment of uninspired practice, we would kick them out of the gym for about a minute. And about when the minute was up, like, all right, come back. And they would get back on the court. And it really worked because it was like a punishment thing. But, mm-hmm. you know, that was just one tool that we used in a team setting. But, you know, as an athlete, when you're in that moment and you're not being told what to do and you have to figure it out for yourself, um, what are some tips that you can give and some tools that you can give um, that help you to get back to the inspired place? Mm. Yeah, well, the instance that you're talking about, uh, I remember um, we were in like a 10,000 seat arena and there was like 100 people. So I remember that was at a point where I sort of like drank the Kool-Aid. I was all in on the team culture. We were, we had big goals. I was in on mastery. Uh, but there was this final piece that I was kind of holding on to that I didn't realize. And it was the, how I appeared to others. So instead of it being a super packed place where you can't really hear, um, I was noticing that like, wow, I'm a loud player. Like I'm playing really loud and I started to get really insecure. Like, gosh, am I, am I being like too overzealous and am I, am I too loud? Like I'm barking all these orders, like what is happening? And so I, that was when I was just, because I became aware, I was just like, okay, I can either choose to worry about how I look uh, or this goal that I'm pursuing is more important. And that's when I sort of went all in. Uh, and so I think how I would answer your question would be, uh, recognizing that f- for me, when, when things would get off the rails, um, I would lean into what I'm trying to accomplish. Uh, like, what's the, what's the big goal here? What are we, what are we going for? Um, and I think that that, com- that really tapped into my competitive drive, which I found to be a stronger internal system then sort of my intellectual figure things out. Um, uh, so, you know, I played, uh, I played golf. So I played golf with uh, my neighbor recently. Uh, his, his, my neighbor and his son, and his son was spraying balls all over the place. And so by the third hole, I said, um, without him knowing, so I took the younger son who was spraying balls to, to the other two guys. I just said, hey, the younger son and I, uh, we're challenging you guys for five bucks in the next six holes. And, uh, and so, um, it was a pretty risky bet. Right. But, um, I said to him, I, I said, Noah, um, uh, pick your target and be an athlete. You're not going to technique your way out of this. Like literally it's not a, it's not a swing thought away. This is about grit and grind, you know, and he totally turned it around, got focused, let go of like any sort of technical things you know wasn't trying to like fix the last mistake it was just about you know see target be athletic and and let's go have some fun and it completely changed the round around so uh, to me that's the best you know if you could find yourself in that analogy and use that next time a tool of just saying like you're not gonna you're not gonna technique your way out of this like worry about technique and fixing that kind of stuff in practice dial it in but now you're in the game um, be an athlete, be a competitor and, and be a great teammate. And, and um, hopefully you're, you're surrounded by teammates that recognize that like, Hey, you know, Aaron, your, your hitting's off today. Like I'll pick up the slack. Just make sure you're covering, you know, whatever it could be. 
And, and I love how you said this is my domain because you realize that in that moment too. You're like, wait, I'm in my happy place. This is my domain, right? And yeah. I think a lot of times that realization, sometimes we, we forget about that because we're so caught up in all our stuff. But I think that simple realization of like, man, like, cause it makes you grateful immediately. Right. And then it makes you more open to those realizations that you can put into practice in that moment. That's great. Yeah. Yeah. So that's really awesome, good. man. Um, yeah. Let's, let's keep moving. Um, what are the, let's talk about emotion. What are the differences and similarities in emotion from both an inspired practice and an inspired game? Yeah. You know, emotions, um, emotions are dangerous friends. <laughs> Um, you know, obviously if you, if you lean on them too much, they're going to let you down, right? Because they're all over the place. Um, it's good to be able, it's good to be able to channel them. Um, but you can't lean on them. Um, and so I would say that whenever I was trying to evaluate a situation, and I was asking questions like, man, I just got blocked four times in a row. Like, what does that mean? Um, that was always the wrong question to be asking. Um, when you're kind of searching for significance. And uh, I also noticed that emotion would almost cloud my vision, my, my vision of what was actually taking place. So the more that I could take out sort of, and, and usually it had to do, usually it has to do with, um, our like personal emotion, not necessarily like, is the team winning? Is the team losing? It's more about like, how am I performing? You know, emotions attached to my performance never seem to be good because, and I like, I don't know if I'm going to be able to quote it correctly, but it's not my quote, but it's basically like, you're never playing as good as you think, and you're never playing as bad as you think. So you're trying to find that like middle line um, to where, um, you know, emotions, you're not, you, the last thing you want to do is bank your, your performance on your emotions. Um, but, but clearly it feels great. You know, like there's endorphins, there's, there's real things that are happening in your brain right. that are, are sending happy feelings and, and, and thoughts when you win. Um, so yeah, I would say they're just, they're, they're appealing, they're fun to ride, but man, if you, if you bank, your, your whole stuff, you know, your whole, uh, identity on emotions. And then you're up for, uh, you're going to be an up and down player. There's no two ways about it. You're going to be hot and you're going to be cold. There's going to be no stabilization. And we often say in the gym, like, Hey, we're not, we're not playing for great. Uh, you know, we want good over time. Um, and that's not to take the joy out of playing, but I'm sorry. Winning is, is fun and grinding is fun. And, um, and so I, I think that the, the, the long-term rewards of good over time far surpass the, uh, the high highs of a good win or a great spike or a great action. Absolutely. I would completely agree. And I would say, too, that the best athletes in the world, including yourself, um, have the ability and the skill set to manage the emotion. The management part is... Uh, kind of what I want to dig in a little bit more about that. And I would love to hear how you, you managed your, not just your emotions, but how you felt the team managed their emotions in the Olympics, specifically in the gold medal match. Mm. It's funny because um, I, I noticed, so music to me is a, a really 
music is, is a mover, uh, I have found. And uh, it's really fascinating. There's not a lot of talk about music. Um, but I have found that mu music will, will shift my mood. Uh, different types of music. You know, I remember listening to like, um, maybe it was like POD back in the day. And I was like, why am I feeling aggressive right now? You know, uh, uh, but what I noticed was that for practice, I needed help, especially later in my career. Um, you know, throughout practice and a grind of a season, I'm looking to get up. And so I'm listening to house music, you know, fast tempo, you know, like pump them up. Um, and, you know, doing that in the weight room and, and stuff like that. Uh, but in the Olympic Games, it is so hype that I'm actually listening to like worship music. I'm like calming my spirit down. I'm like saying this isn't about me. Like I'm literally trying to humble myself because it's so high that I don't want to go there. Uh, you know, I want to be down. I want to be uh, down to earth. I want to know um, exactly where I came from. And, uh, and so that was kind of how it was for me. I'm sure it's different for everybody. But um, I think the most pressure-packed match that exists in volleyball is the quarterfinal match in, the, in an Olympic, Olympic game. So you've, you've made it past pool play, and now you're in the final eight. And the winner of this match goes into the semifinal and has a chance, two chances at a, at a medal. The loser's done. And so that match is the most pressure-packed. Pressure and I think everybody, you know, in, in 2008, I think we were dialed to the point where, uh, I mean, that was a 3-2 match. And in fact, uh, I remember, I think that could have been one of the most pivotal turning points in my career. Um, and I, I want to look into it, but there was a moment where I took a swing in the fourth set that was uncharacteristic for me. Uh, it was a, an aggressive swing in a bad situation. I was off the net, and our team needed it. It was a big point, a big swing in the right direction. And so to, that was kind of like my, you know, if Jordan hitting the game winner. It certainly wasn't a game winner, and it certainly wasn't what led to our team win. Uh, that's absolutely what I'm not saying. But for me, it kind of kept ticking the confidence, you know, meter up of like, hey, I can take some chances um, and my team needs me to take chances. Uh, but that was in that match. So I think in terms of managing emotions, it's, you know, breath, there's all sorts of great tactics and techniques out there. There's, um, there's this concept of, uh, and these were all, we had mental coaches for 15 years on the national team. So uh, Andrea Becker, who was at UCLA, I don't know when you were, but uh, so she was, she was really big on head up. And so a lot of athletes, we, we, we go uh, after a play, we're looking down. And what, when we're looking down, I guess the science shows that we're getting really analytical and we're, we're getting in that space. Uh, but when we look up, uh, it accesses a different part of our brain that's sort of like optimistic, sky's the limit. And so she would have us encourage us to pick a focal point. So if I'm coming into an arena, uh, or a gym, or a court somewhere around the world, I'm going to find a, a focal point that is going to remain my focal point for the entirety of my experience on that court. And it could be 
the American flag. It could be a uh, whatever, a light. Um, and so I assign value, not to that thing, but every time I look at it, I'm thinking about the things that drive me to be an inspired athlete. Uh, so late in my career, I did so much traveling on the beach with my family at home. Every time that I would find that focal point, it would remind me that, hey, irrespective of how you feel right now, Reed, you've got a wife who's schlepping all the work back at home. You've got two kids that are missing their daddy. We spent a lot of money to get you here. So you don't have the luxury of going in a funk because you don't feel good or because you don't like what's happening. Like all that's off the table. You're playing for you know these other people. So uh, those were some of the strategies that I used to, uh, to manage emotions. That's really cool, Reed. Wow, that's, that's uh, I actually wanna, I wanna take it to a place of off the court for a second since you mentioned your family. Um, mm -hmm. And you know, again, this project is for living an inspired life in the game and out of the game. Uh, Cause I think that's what it's really all about. So can you talk a little bit about how the inspired feeling, the emotional feeling transcends one sport or discipline and carries over to their personal life? Mm -hmm. I think, um, yeah, you know, I just think that when you experience it in one part of your life, like uh, to me, there was this, this gal, um, she wrote a book, forgetting total, total truth I think it was called Nancy Piercy and she talked about um, the basic premise was that that like we have these categories in our lives and um, I wanted to be a category less person I didn't want to act one way in one category and another way in a different category and so you know one of my driving forces is to try to be a consistent person um, and uh, that, that can be hard to do sometimes. Uh, but how do, I, how do I operate at church on Sunday morning the same way I would at a final in Manhattan Beach? Like there should be no, um, it shouldn't be different. And it would be, I would, I would feel like I was being uh, in, uh, I, I wasn't being true to myself if, if, I was, if I was different in those contexts. So, you know, taking that into um, other life, you know, I recognize through sport that the real gains happen when you stop thinking about yourself uh, and that the whole world revolves around you. And so that that sort of came to me off the court first when I got married and all of a sudden I wasn't just trying to consider my own stuff. Uh, and then with kids, the same. And, uh, you know, that's one of the hardest things we have to learn. You know, I have two kids, uh, 10 and um, five. And you don't have to teach them to think of themselves more, right? You're, you're teaching them how to not think of themselves so much and to consider others. And it just seems like um, the inspired lives, the people who inspire me are the ones who are leading in significant ways. And leadership typically always involves some level of surface uh, service, um, a perspective beyond themselves, um, it typically involves work versus words like they're, you know, they're, they're doing stuff. So th those are kind of some of the things that come to mind. Awesome. Let's, let's go back to mindset. I know you're big on mindset. So am I, um, I want to, I want to get your perspective a little bit on self-talk, um, pre, during and post trainings and games. Can you give us a glimpse of the self-talk? What's going on in your mind? Is it keywords? Is it pictures? Is it music? 
Just give us a glimpse. You know, that's a that's an interesting question because at different stages of your season, um, you're gonna you're gonna be in different spots, right? And the the narrative in your mind is is gonna be different. And and I think the the main thing is is who's controlling your narrative. Uh, is it a coach? Is it a social group? Is it uh, the opponent? Um, and so for me, when I started to feel like the narrative was getting hijacked, and uh, I would never play well in somebody else's when somebody else's narrative was playing out, I don't think we can. Like we have to, uh, we have to. I don't know, be in control of that. Uh, and so if I felt like I was, um, I was receiving a lot of talk from a coach that was negative let's say or let's say a lot of pressure you know in professional I noticed it even more where I think when you're in high school maybe it's like peer pressure like it's it's the narrative that um that you you feel like you're you you're perceiving others might think of based on your actions and words and performance on a professional level people are paying you to do something and there's a lot of times that these these owners think that you're like a video game like hey i bought read pretty and read pretty provides these stats all the time and they forget you know they don't let you know that you're a human and so whenever that started started to spin me out and i started to feel like man they're wanting me to play perfect and i gotta pass every ball perfectly i gotta put every ball away and i gotta do it night in and night out like this is hard what i would do is actually go to uh, a journal I've got one right here and I would just start writing um, the answers to like three questions. Who am I? What am I about? And what am I trying to do? And I, I certainly did not know that I was actually answering those three questions. Uh, but that's what it, where it would always like, and it wasn't like I'm read pretty, I'm 6'4", you know, whatever. It was just like, hey, I'm fierce. I'm a competitor. I'm a team guy. Uh, I'm athletic. I... Um, I'm quick. I'm powerful. Um, you know, I'm not, especially in, in my, in this game, I'm certainly not tall. I'm not going to write that I'm tall. I'm the most skilled. Uh, uh, I'm not the best player. I'm not writing any of those things. I'm writing the things that, that I firmly believe. Um, I never give up. Uh, I'm a fighter, you know, like those types of things. And then I, that's kind of what I'm about. I'm about grinding. I'm about grit. I'm about overcoming underdog. So I'll play that script in my mind and then I'll remind myself of what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to win a championship. I'm trying to win a medal. I'm trying to make the team. I'm trying to, you know, do whatever. And that always would reset me. I would like be recentered, and I would be able to go into the game. Um, and literally it could, the changes you can make mentally can happen in 30 minutes. Um, whereas if you needed to figure out how to be a better passer, like you're not going to think your way out of that. Like you got to just go practice. Right. Uh, so it's, it's really balanced. And um, I, I think I have a balanced approach of just like, these are the things that you can improve mentally in, in like an instant. Uh, but, but let's not um, overlook hard work and uh, fundamental skills. Would you recommend journaling to the youth athlete? Absolutely. You know, for me, especially in trying to um, establish awareness and, 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 uh, you know, hear me, I'm not writing like, oh, today is a beautiful day. And uh, I'm just so happy today. Like, that's not what I'm writing. I'm writing, um, you know, practice today. 
I'm focused on, you know, this thing or, or this thing happened in, in practice. I'm noticing that um, I'm, I'm playing at one level up till 17, but at 17, there's something happening. So I'll just note it. I don't have to have the answer. But then when I go back and read it, the last three days, actually, uh, I've been spinning out. Uh, I'm, in, I'm an entrepreneur. I'm, I'm a, a founder of a startup company. And uh, these times are crazy. COVID-19 is shutting everything down. And, and, and it's hard to um, figure out, like, man, what's a, which direction do I go? I got to, like, almost remake my whole business in six weeks uh, to survive. I'm actually rereading all of my journal entries of why I, I chose this company, why we're doing this thing. And it's, it's, it's like breathing life back into me. And I'm starting to see consistent points and it's reaffirming um, the mission that I'm on, uh, what I'm doing and where I need to go. So it's so beneficial to start just cre basically creating your own stats of what's taking place up here. Um, and you're starting to develop awareness through it. I really like that. I'm huge on keywords. You know, when, when I'm coaching, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to stay consistent with the keywords that I've created and I'm trying to make it fun for, for the youth athletes, you know, so there's a fun aspect to it, but I, I'm a huge believer in the power of the subconscious. And whenever you put in that subconscious, whether it's keywords or affirmations, you know, those are the things that are going to come up later. And, and that, that's, that's where the, the fun stuff is. The magic, the magic stuff gets banked in there. And mm -hmm. so I think, I think athletes like yourself almost innately are able to access that, um, you know, with practice and work, obviously, but I really think that that's a skill that I wish I would have learned, you know, uh, growing up, you know, instead of now, you know, <laughs> looking back. Mm -hmm. And so I think writing those keywords down, like you're saying, I'm fierce, I'm powerful, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm not a quitter, you know, things like that are super important and helpful. Yeah, I think to, to, to piggyback on that too, like, um, if, you know, to be totally forthcoming, I mean, there's been times in my career where I knew inside of me that I had what it took to take the final shot, let's say, or to score the final point or to, or to be on the court when it mattered most. And there was lots of coaches that I played for in times that I wasn't given that chance. And it was frustrating. And I, I, I would remember, um, several times thinking like why why aren't they seeing what i feel and if you stop there then it's a blame game and so i basically said it's 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 my it's my mission to show them every day that i need to be on the court to be the guy you know one of the people on the court to do this thing um, and I would really encourage people to take that next step. Don't just stop at, um, because some of us just have this belief that's not based on reality yet in ourselves. And um, if, if we're not given the chance, we could really easily just quit and go do something else. And, and I would encourage everybody listening to say, hey, if you've got an innate belief in yourself, uh, number one, that's really not normal. You know, not many people have that, right? Um, and so if you have an innate belief in yourself, but others aren't seeing it yet, just know you haven't proved it to them yet and take it upon yourself to say, I'm going to make sure I prove it to them. I took a few breaks also on the national team. I started as an outside hitter on the national team for 14 years, but there were several times in that, that stretch that I would take three to four months off or something. And when I came back, I would always have the mindset of, um, I don't care 
I don't want to prove it to my coach. I don't care about that. I want the other 11 guys on this team to know without a shadow of a doubt that that's my spot. Like I want to earn it back in their eyes. And so I think that if we started to shift the conversation from like, man, the coach just, just isn't seeing like what I'm doing and all these different things, just maybe say there might be another reality taking place. You just haven't shown it enough in enough times for them to, to fully uh, buy in. But man, it feels good when they finally do. And when you say take the next step, what exactly does that mean? It's personal ownership and recognizing that like, um, I'm not going to blame the coach for not putting me in that position, but clearly I haven't demonstrated enough times over time that I need to be on the court or on this team or the balls in my hand or the, you know, whatever it may be. Uh, So I'm going to work even harder in practice. And a lot of people um, I've seen a lot of athletes and even in my own experience, I might know that I could do it in games, but if I'm not doing it in practice, how is anybody else going to know? So even though uh, there's been so many big moments early in my career where um, I had the firm belief that I could overcome. Um, and how would, how would other people know that? I wasn't the tallest guy. I wasn't the obvious person to set, you know, all these different things. And so that made me think that, like, maybe, maybe I need to do more in practice and demonstrate these behaviors then so that um, they know, you know, everybody else knows where to go to if, if that's really what I believe. Wow. That's, that's awesome. Reed. Um, I don't have this written down, but just off the top of my head, since we're on mindset, how are you, how do you utilize stoppage time? There's a lot of stoppage time in the game, either between whistles or timeouts um, and not just volleyball, but just as an athlete to any other athlete out there who, who needs a little help in the stoppage time. I mean, are you using it to reflect on the last play? Are you using it to visualize the next play? Are you trying to stay right in the middle or is it a combination of all that or something else? I think, I think for your athletes, the best advice I can give is um, like when I'm in games, I'm trying to solve a puzzle. I am trying to understand what is taking place. What is the other team doing? Um, if the play just happened, maybe, it, maybe I'm trying to take as much data as I can from it. But I'm thinking about where's the serve coming from? What happened the last time they served from that position? Where do I expect to try to exploit weaknesses? If I'm playing like a Phil Dahlhauser, Jake Gibb, or a Brazil I'm acutely aware of what their tactics are. I'm trying to discover their game plan because I know that they're going to tell me about my weaknesses faster than I'll know my weaknesses. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, for example, the, I was pretty lazy with my foot, footwork on the beach early and picked up right away that the best players were serving me short. So, you know, I was able to take that into practice the next couple of weeks. And all of a sudden it was just like, yeah, serve me short. It's going to be a point, you know? So, um, I would say if you're, if you're in a match and you're struggling with ruminating over the last play or your own performance, you're probably in the wrong space uh, mentally. You need to get to be uh, a lock picker. Um, you know, you, have, you need to have more guile of um, I'm studying. I'm, I'm, I'm trying to figure you out. 
and I'm going to, um, I'm going to find ways that are working. I'm going to be aware of the things that aren't working, but it's not hitting my psyche. Like, Oh, I feel so bad. He's blocked me three times. Um, it's like, okay, that's not working. What else could work? That's, that's kind of how, um, I would respond. That's awesome. Um, let's talk about flow. Can you identify when you're in the game, in the flow or in the zone? Yeah, let's see. I mean, like, I would say that I'm, I'm almost inclined to say that that's not a normal, you know, it's, it's a pretty abnormal to where things are just clicking. Right. Um, it's typically more hard work than that. Um, and so I've learned how to win without being in flow. Um, but it's certainly nice to recognize when you are in flow. And I would say that, um, I think instinctually you do this, but like I've heard it of golfers, um, you know, pro golfers, the margins between them are so small. And so when they're on, um, they're flag hunting when they're off, uh, or, or not when they're off, but when they're not on, um, they're aware of where an acceptable miss is. Like if we're going to miss, we're going to miss this way. So it's, it's a little more calculated. So I, th I think when you're on, you're probably taking more risk, but because you're on, it's not risk that's hurting you. Um, and, and it's actually adding to the momentum. Uh, so I think, you know, there's less flow the older I get, you know, um, <laughs> I, I would say that, you know, it's, but there's, I don't, I don't search for it. Um, you know, it's not something that I'm looking for. Well, th that's funny. Cause it leads me to my, my next question, which is about banking that feeling because, um, you know, I've experienced that feeling a few times thinking back, uh, in, in my life, but only really a few. And I kind of want to know from you, is it, do you think it's possible to, when you get that feeling to bank it in your mind, to access it later? So I think just by virtue of the question, there's a word in there that we need to be really careful about, which we asked earlier, which was feeling. Um, so feeling, emotion, uh, to me, those are scary words. And I want to be, you know, if we're, if you and I are, are hiking Mount Everest and we're on an ice shield, I don't want to be going on feelings. You know what I mean? Like, I want to know the route and the route is, is, you know, ice pick in this one and we're going to, you know, we're going to anchor ourselves and we're going to keep trekking up the road. Um, and if we happen to hit a state where like, we're just totally grooving, then like, let's go, let's cover some ground. Uh, but I'm not, I'm not going to necessarily uh, look for it. Okay. Um, and I'm certainly not going to, but I will say that like confidence in your ability is something to where, um, it reached a point where I was never entering a game wondering, I wonder if, I wonder what Reed's going to show up tonight. You know what I mean? Like it, there was enough data to say, um, I kind of know what I do. And so if I don't do that right off the bat, um, I'm not going to think twice about it. If, if I do it over and above off the bat, I'm not going to think twice of it. And, and I see, you see this in golf too. I don't know if you're a golfer, but, uh, do you play better when you know the score or when you don't know the score? Um, and so the idea of like, oh, I'm on a, I'm on a run. I'm going to, I'm going to now take, 
undue chances. Like I, I would just rather be so skilled. And that's why, that's why my approach to the mindset is to become a master of my craft. You know, essentially what I'm trying to do is have every tool that I need to handle every circumstance. So I'm not looking for um, when it's easy or when I'm good. I'm just looking for the right tool for the right time. Um, and that, that's that simple. <laughs> I really love that. Um, that's powerful, man. I like that a lot. Uh, let's move on. Let's talk about sources. Where do you get inspiration from? Everywhere, man. I've been watching, I've been watching a lot of stuff lately and that's the, it's funny. Um, I've been watching a lot of master classes lately and across the board. The thing that I hear the most is all of them say, I get my inspiration from like not my domain from everywhere else. Wow. Uh, so I would say um, it was the same for me. I think athletically, I had obviously guys that I was looking to. I think Karch probably early on. I think Jiba, um, uh, uh, Gerbic for Serbia was a huge um, inspiration. You know, he, that that 2000s was all about Gerbic, the 2000 Olympics in Sydney. Uh, 2004 was kind of all about Jiba. So you had these, these like markers ahead of me that I looked to, I think outside of my sport, I think Kobe was a huge inspiration. Um, he came into, so I went to LMU and the Lakers, his, his rookie year was my uh, sophomore year, I believe there. It might have even been my freshman years and they trained, they practiced right after us or, or right before us uh, at Gersten Pavilion. Um, and so, you know, just kind of watching him being in LA, being in California, watching him progress, um, was an inspiration. And then of course, Tiger Woods, you know, when you, all the, all of our generation, the people that really, uh, Roger Federer, amazing competitor, Love Roger. race. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, I have, you know, I'm, I'm a strong Christian, um, strong beliefs and and being a Christ follower. And uh, so I'm reading the Bible regularly uh, that I'm reading about guys like Joshua, Daniel, Nehemiah. Nehemiah was, it's really interesting. Nehemiah, I'm not sure if you're familiar with the story. It's in the old Testament, but he was one of the great leaders. And, uh, and his story was very inspirational to, to me and it was funny because it was to my dad also but independently like I didn't gravitate towards him because of my dad but we both like his whole his whole life is kind of based on being inspired by uh, Nehemiah and his leadership and and so that's another large part of my inspiration awesome man what about uh, coaches I know you've been coached quite a bit I mean John Sproul was one of my coaches and I've he's inspired me quite a bit um, can you talk about any other coaches that have you know, inspired you to, to like pull a little bit more out of you? Sure. Yeah. So I would say, you know, the, I had a great, I was very fortunate uh, when I first started playing volleyball, I moved to Arizona and Fred Mann, my high school coach actually knew volleyball. He had competed on the FIVB tour a few times. Uh, he's from South Africa. So he, he provided a great foundation. And then I went to play for Rick McLaughlin and Rick was huge because uh, my soft, more year I was really struggling with passing it was a limiting factor and I would get down on myself because 
I, I was a setter in high school and in a right side hitter in the front row. So I never passed. Okay. I was recruited as a setter or so I thought. And three weeks into my freshman year, they're like, oh, you're going to be an outside hitter. And I'd never pass. I didn't know how to do it. Um, and now all of a sudden I'm in division one volleyball trying to pass. So it was a limiting factor for me. Uh, by my, by my um, sophomore year in the fall, Rick could clearly see that it was, I was getting in my own way mentally about it. So he stopped practice and sort of in a rant, like an angry rant, basically said, um, that's it. I'm no longer going to sub you out. If you suck on the court, you're just going to have to deal with it. And it was like this big, like punitive thing. And it completely unlocked me. Uh, I was no longer being uh, afraid of like, am I going to get taken out? I was now focused on the job at hand, which was I can't get aced. <laughs> I, my team needs me to pass this ball. So that was huge. Uh, as a professional, I would say, you know, I played for some, you know, my first eight years on the national team, I had in, huge influences of uh, Doug, Marv Dunphy. So Doug Beal, Marv Dunphy, um, Hugh McCutcheon, Carl McGowan. Um, those were got like the mainstays. John Spraw uh, was an assistant in 08. Ron Larson, um, Rob Browning. And Jay, I mean, like just that whole first crew was really formative uh, for me. Um, I think Hugh was probably my my favorite. You know, he he was. We won the gold. There was a reason. <laughs> he he had such a huge part of that. Uh, so he's my favorite coach, probably. And um, I had some great coaches overseas at times. Uh, Danielle Ritchie coached Karch and Steve. Um, back in the day, and I played a season with him, and he had a great uh, assistant, Yuri Panchiko, who was a Russian. So the two of them were like, um, they were great in different ways. And, uh, and then I got to play for Alekno for three years in Russia, who was the gold medal winning coach in London. So that was really fascinating to play for um, somebody very similar in philosophy of how to play the game to Hugh but very different in personality and just seeing that like the philosophy worked, uh, you know, in two different contexts with totally different athletes. So. I mean, you've had the highest level of coaching basically possible in our sport. Could you summarize, this is, is going to be challenging. Could you summarize all your coaching that has worked for you into like a concept or two? I, you know, I think it comes down to leadership. Um, and I did, this is a, this is a, um, an actual construct that, um, I didn't make, but it's the, um, support challenge matrix. I don't know if you've ever heard of that, the support challenge matrix. Um, and to me, the best coaches. So if you have, uh, you know, high support versus low support on this, on this one line, right? And then um, high challenge and low challenge on this other line. So the, the, we'll call this one the support. So high support with high challenge. Those were the best coaches. So when you have a coach that is willing to support you fully, but challenge you fully, um, that's, that's the, the best coaches fall in that quadrant, uh, fell in that quadrant, um, hands down all the time. So if you have high support, but low challenge, 
it's a dysfunctional environment. If you have low challenge, low support, that's a bad, you know, if you have high challenge, but low support, uh, I think that's called like the abdicator where it's, it's, it's harsh. You know, I'm going to demand things of you, but I'm not willing to, to give you the support you, that you need to, to do it. So, so really to, to encompass all of them, um, all the best impactful coaches are the ones that, that challenged had brought a lot of challenge. Um, they saw the potential in you and the team and they held you to a very high standard, but at the same time, we're, we're giving you everything you needed to succeed. You know, we're going to support you in every way that we can. I love that. Um, Reed, I want to respect your time here. Um, I would love to get through the popcorn questions, but I just want to check in with you on your time. Yeah. Uh, was it like five minutes for popcorn? Sure. We could do that. All right, let's do it. All right, cool. Uh, how do you define success and what does being successful mean to you? To me, success is operating at your full potential with no regrets. You know, it's leaving no room for regret. Love it. How do you consider the idea of failure? Failure is a learning moment. Uh, to me, failure is not trying. So you really fail when um, you give up and don't try. Uh, but if you have a setback, that's a data point. Uh, learn from it. Uh, that doesn't mean it doesn't hurt. It absolutely hurts, and it should hurt. If it doesn't hurt, you're in the wrong game. Uh, but it's a data point, and I'm going to learn from it. What are the most successful habits that you do on a consistent basis? The most successful habits, I would say, are starting with the end in mind, um, surrounding myself with the right team, um, and having just a, a clear mission uh, to be on. And then for me, it's, uh, I do the best when I'm up early, even if I'm tired and nobody else is up to sort of start my day and get centered. Um, those are, those are my habits. Love it. What's the most important lesson that has helped shape who you are today? The most important lesson is that um, setbacks are learning moments. Um, I like to define my career by what I lost, not by what I won, uh, because uh, what I lost, uh, I had to face reality and figure out how to not lose in that way again, which forced me to change. Uh, the definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over again and expecting a different result. So if I wanted a different result, I was going to have to change something. So it was in the losses that I actually changed and that stays with you forever, right? Uh, my gold medal helps me in no way today. Um, it's a great thing to talk about at dinner. Um, but all the change that took place in the setbacks, that's created the person that you're talking to today. I love that. Can you share the biggest challenge you've been through on your journey? Oh gosh, there's so many layers of challenges. I would say um, the biggest challenge was probably um, in my athletic career was probably my ACL injury, double knee surgery, and coming back in my late 30s. So there was a dynamic that not only was I trying to overcome the injury itself, but I was also trying to beat father time. And I was also trying to reintegrate into a team that was successful in my absence. That was all, you know, 23, 24, 25. Um, 
that definitely what's interesting about the toughest moment was that squeezed more potential than I even thought that I had. Uh, so that going through that process produced a better player, um, maybe didn't jump as high, but was absolutely a better player than uh, before the injury. Just to follow up on that, because um, we talked about the injury and, and rehab. For anyone out there who's going through rehab, what can you offer them? What kind of mindset advice can you offer them? Yeah, you know, a really, a really interesting tactic and, and trick that I found was that, you know, when you're trying to, we talked about it earlier, when you're trying to be clutch, it's about being aware and you have to be in the moment. You can't be thinking about the future or the past. You have to be right there. But when you're injured, I found it to be a very helpful trick for me to think about the future a lot. So I was always, I was in rehab grinding over total knee extensions and, you know, riding on a stationary bike for, you know, 30 minutes covering zero ground, you know, all of these boring things, but like I'm putting music in, I'm thinking about what I'm going to do when I'm back. I'm putting myself in the future. And it was actually interesting when I got back on the court, I actually had to rein it back in because I gotten so used to thinking about the future that I actually had to like rein it back in. But I would say if you're, if you're grinding through rehab to stay positive and think about all the things you're going to do when you make it back out. I love that. Reed, last question for you, bro. Uh, really appreciate your time here. Um, how important is the idea of having impact to you? Oh, that's a great question. I think that, um, I think in all areas of our lives, we're making investments. Um, so obviously in our American culture, that's very affluent. Money is the thing that comes to mind first when you're thinking of talking about investments, but really it's not even, it's a resource, but it's not the most important resource because when you think about it, you can always make more of it. Um, you can, you can get it, you can lose it. And uh, there's typically always opportunity to, to get more of it. Uh, time, on the other hand, is a much more valuable resource because you don't know how much of it you have um, and you can never get it back. Uh, and so when I was thinking through, well, gosh, playing athletics professionally was a pretty easy job. I had two requirements, um, show up on time and try hard. <laughs> Um, that was it. I wasn't making any decisions. Um, I wasn't the one telling us what games to play in and who was going to play and how our practices should be. I just showed up. Um, and so when I transitioned into the real world and started to make more decisions in a day than I had in a whole decade, it was pretty scary. But the thing that I thought of most was, well, I don't want to just make a buck. I want to make a difference. And I think all of us have this sense that Life is short. Uh, we can't get back time. So how do we, how do we make a difference? Uh, how do we make an impact? And so, um, you know, I think that we all just hope that the things that we're pursuing have a benefit for more than just ourselves. And, um, you know, that's, that's my goal. Did I cut off there? No, that's my goal. Um, and, you know, just trying to, do my best to keep the the team in mind and not just, you know, especially when we're in these trying times, like um, I think sports has a lot to offer 
our communities on the other end of this COVID crisis because we get team, we get collaboration. And it, it would seem to me that on the other end of this, do I, um, it would seem to me that if I'm starting a fitness company that I should probably be linking arms with other fitness companies and we should be fighting this thing together and trying to like swap stories and share Intel. Uh, that's a very athletic team driven thing. Um, it's not so much a business concept. Um, and so, you know, I, I, I think in terms of impact, um, I think we all would love to think that when we leave this place, we've left, we've left the mark. And I think our wins and losses, I mean, take Kobe, for example, um, the way in which he operated is the, his legacy and, and what he seemed to care about uh, versus the five championships. Right. So um, I think he's a great example for, for, you know, some, some good legacies to, to leave behind. Well, Reed, man, whew, that was awesome. That was so, that was so fun. We covered so much territory. I can't thank you enough for your time, man. Um, for anyone listening out there, go to readpretty.com, opt in for the max potential process. Uh, your other website is mxpmindset.com, right? Mm -hmm. yep. um, yeah, get on, get on Reed's list. Uh, Reed, you're an inspiration and you're an awesome person, man. Appreciate your time. Thank you. All right. Good luck with what you're doing and good luck to all the athletes out there. Right on, man. Right on. Thank you so all much. Right, take care. All right.